almost three and a half years ago now, around mid-March 2020, for the first time in world history, perhaps at least in our living memory, the whole world stopped. Everything grounded to a halt. Everything shut down. Everything closed. It all stopped. Now, maybe some of you are old enough to remember that. But for the better part of two months, even longer in some parts of the world like Australia, no one was going anywhere and anyone going somewhere was essentially going to work because they were considered to be essential. Do you remember how that felt? Being told that you weren't considered essential. (laughs) The world's busiest cities were completely abandoned. Famous monuments and iconic gathering places left dormant and deserted. Esteemed institutions and prized economic centres left vacant and forsaken. The whole world stopped. And we were alive when it happened. The defining moment of an entire generation that we are still feeling the effects of. You see, up until that point, we'd come to expect that there'd be a certain way of life, that we expect a certain order to things. Everything was like clockwork, always on, always seasonal, always operational, day in, day out, 24-7, 365 days a year. It was always been this way ever since we can remember it. You could count on things being like this. In fact, we did. We all counted on it. Everyone was counting and everything was being counted. Fueled by economic, global economics and an insatiable appetite for endless consumption, we'd all just come to expect that what was would always just be. The evolution and the entrepreneurial enterprise that has happened since the age of the Industrial Revolution, we expected... It would always be like this, if not better. That was the dream we were sold. That was the life that we lived. But then, one day, it all stopped. Life was plunged into chaos. Lives filled with confusion and fear. Trips cancelled. Planes uh, planes stopped. Grounded to a halt. Plans changed. Disappointment replaced expectation. Uncertainty replaced security. Organisations left disorganised, industries left in turmoil and institutions left teetering on the edge. And so we all tried, didn't we, to pivot. And we shifted everything online and onto Zoom. As the daily infection cases numbers climbed, the global economy jumped off a cliff. We were left with new words for our vocabulary like asymptomatic, super spreader and state premier. And we use the same words to describe our constant change like unprecedented or unprecedented. (laughs) Now, almost three and a half years on, we're inoculated again from what COVID exposed in us. No, not the virus, friends, but the disease that exists within us. Sin makes us think that we're at the centre of the universe. And so here we are, back making plans and appointments, organising events and using up credit vouchers, But James says it's just pride and arrogance and self-indulgence because we live for tomorrow like yesterday never happened. 
See it for yourself, won't you? James chapter 4, verse 14. You got your Bible there? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In some of the hardest and harshest words to date, and let's be honest, it's been a pretty rough ride with James so far. James, who's been holding up a mirror for us so that we don't forget what we look like, now takes the mirror that he's been holding for us and smashes our vanity over the head with it. James has been calling Christ followers to live a life of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And we've called this series Wholehearted because God wants us to live integrated lives. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of what it says. Lives that live out the life of Christ. They persevere under trial, says James. They don't show favouritism. They listen before they speak. It controls its anger and its own tongue. It shows faith by what it does, knows it needs grace and gives grace to others. Life and lip, head, heart and hands, theology meaning real world application. James wants us to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Otherwise, he says, it's all just worthless religion. But now James addresses merchant traders and he tries to reason with them. Come now, he says to them. But what he says to them isn't all that foreign to us. His words wouldn't be out of place in our context either. In fact, friends, if you listen carefully to others this morning, you might even hear it said over morning tea. Look there with me, won't you? James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That much to my gastronomical disappointment, last Friday, a local cafe owner told me that he was selling up his cafe. His plan is to take a holiday and some time off to go and work for someone else for a little while and then start a new business somewhere nearby. Now, we applaud that kind of entrepreneurial thinking and spirit, don't we? Corinne even remarked to me how impressed she was by it. But not James. Of course, we do it too, although our incentive isn't always financial. Holiday plans, anybody? Concert tickets purchased? Reservations made? Bookings confirmed? Some of us come back from a trip with plans already in place for the next one. I mean, it's Father's Day. Surely some of you have plans for after church today, don't you? It's technically a long weekend for us, the Gold Coast show holiday. How that's a holiday, I'll never know. But maybe you, should, maybe you wouldn't have been here if you'd realised and managed yourself a little bit better. You've got your diary with you this morning. Maybe your calendar's on your phone. Go ahead, take it out, have a look for me. Seriously, take your calendar out. You've got your phone there. How far into the future is your furthest commitment? I'll give you a minute. Anybody got anything for 2025? Mine is May 2024. Anyone beat that? Excellent. We'll have a conversation after church. But friends, this kind of planning and organising, it's just part and parcel of how we do life, isn't it? We work, we rest, we play, we eat Mars bars, 
It's the rhythm and the routine of our existence, the marker of one moment from the next. So what's James' beef here? What's his problem? Well, nothing in and of itself. James isn't, having, isn't against us having plans. What's the issue then? Well, it's just the selfish attitudes and the entitled assumptions that sit behind all of these grand plans of ours. We think we're at the centre of it all. We think that the world revolves around us. But it doesn't, does it? Mum was right. Verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How's that for cheering you up, Shiloh? We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. We have no idea what will happen tomorrow. Surely COVID taught us that much. The only thing certain is uncertainty. And although that's not quite true, is it? Because we'll know where we'll be in 10,000 years. The Lord's made that certain to us. But we have no idea what will happen tomorrow. The Lord hasn't made that certain to us, has he? What is your life? asked James. It's a haunting question, isn't it? It's the kind of question that keeps you awake at night, the kind of question that wakes you at 3am. No matter the cause of your insomnia, I guarantee that you'll never come up with James's answer to the question. He says that you're the dew on your car in the morning. You're the fog on your shower screen glass. That's what your life is. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. Nothing but vapour, steam out of the kettle. That's what we are, says James. Here's what our life amounts to. Nothing more than early morning mist. At the flick of the exhaust fan, it's quickly forgotten. To double down on the point, put your hand up if you know the name of your great-grandfather. What was your great-grandfather's first name? And yet, here is a man who's not only alive many decades ago, not that long ago, but whose blood now courses through your entire veins, but is largely already forgotten and unknown. Our lives are fleeting, says James. And it won't be many years before we're forgotten too, even by our families. The world moves on really quickly. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? But we think it just keeps going on forever. We assume that things will always be this way. And that's the problem. That's the problem that James has with all of this. When we are at the centre of our own plans, we take God out of the equation. It's the same problem that happens when we judge others, isn't it? We take the place of God. We become the judge. That's arrogance, says James. In fact, he says, that's evil. But we are not in control of our own lives. Heck, we can't even control our own tongues. God is in control, not us, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Not living in accordance with our own will, but in submission to his but just simply saying, God willing, simply saying, if the Lord wills, isn't some kind of magic formula or some kind of sanctified mantra to be mindlessly repeated 
when we are discussing our plans or putting something in the calendar for next month. This is more than just repeating a phrase, but then carrying on like we did before. If the Lord wills, is meant to reflect a repentant change of attitude of our hearts. That our will is in alignment with his for us, not wanting our will to be done, but his to be done. We already know the good that we should be doing. God's already shown that to us. And so has James. Let me show you again, chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, here is the good that we should be doing. When we say, my schedule is full or I'm sorry, I just don't have time for that right now, James is saying there in verse 17, can you see it? That's sin. When we don't have time to meet with God, when we don't have space in our lives for devotion, when we're too busy to meet with God's people and too tired to serve others who are in need, when we're too busy to spend time with our spouse or even listen to our own children, when other commitments make our family feel like they are widows and orphans, then we are too busy. We've prioritised the wrong things. And James says, that's sin. Look there, verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Ouch. Not a lot of wriggle room there, is there? And yet still we try and wriggle our way around it. Things are too busy, we say. Life's a bit hectic at the moment. I've got too many things on. Maybe when things calm down a little bit, when we make something else our priority, when we've planned our lives around that, we've not reflected God's will. When we're not driven by what matters most to him, we are driven by what matters most to us. And so our worldly desires have exposed our religion not only as being stained, but worthless. James now sets his sights on you, rich. Can you see that? And that's not a reason for us to switch off because while James starts the same way as chapter 4, verse 13, he isn't really reasoning with the rich now, is he? I mean, this is some of the strongest language found anywhere in the New Testament. Come and see it with me, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, you might disagree with me, and that's okay, but I don't think that James is addressing wealthy Christians here. I think he's talking to rich non-Christians, and here is why I think that. There is no call from James to repentance. It's just a declaration that judgment is coming upon them. And also, James addresses them as you rich rather than my brothers, which he does repeatedly throughout the letter. And so the question then becomes, why? Mike, why would James be addressing the unbelieving rich? I mean, they're not even the letter's recipients here. Why take a swing at them when they're not even the target? Well, James isn't trying to reach, isn't trying to teach the ungodly rich about the error of their ways. I think he's more like an Old Testament prophet who announces God's judgment on the surrounding nations. James writes so that Christians will hear what God thinks about wealthy, about the wealthy and those who've oppressed them. 
about how God's going to liberate his people when he comes in judgment against the ungodly. So even if you are thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm a broke Christian, James says it's so that we all hear it. So we better listen. Weep and howl, says James to the rich, because misery is coming your way. And what follows in chapter 5, verses 2 to 6, are the reasons that, are being, that they are being judged. But they're not being condemned for being wealthy. They're not under judgment because they have money. It's not having wealth that is the issue. It's what they've done and not done with their money. What they've done and not done with their wealth, that's the issue. Hoarding, extravagance and injustice. They've hoarded their possessions. Can you see that there in verse 2? Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. It's just a picture of waste, isn't it? Everything's spoiled, ruined or now in ruins. It's such a shame. Shame on them for amassing endless possessions, says James, for no purpose other than simply to possess them. See it again. Their possessions left to rot. Their clothing has been moth-eaten, treasures that have corroded. Their wealth now testifies against them, exposing their hearts that require acquirements. This is how our culture measures success, isn't it? A constant accumulation of more and more stuff. The world sees this as a good thing. The more you have, the better you've done. The more expensive it is, the more impressed we are by it. The one who dies with the most toys wins. What we don't realise or we just seem to forget is that even with the one with the most toys still dies. Hoarding is foolish because wealth doesn't last. Materialism corrodes. It rots and it disappears. There's a downturn in the economy. Share prices drop. Interest rates rise. The dollar loses its value. The Reserve Bank leaves us with nothing in reserve. Inflation rates leave us feeling deflated. We put stock in the stock market, but we end up putting stock in the wrong things. Hoarding for its own sake is foolishness. Like us, these monetary things are momentary. Besides all that, it's the opposite of what Jesus said, isn't it? Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure this morning, friends? It's not that we can't enjoy the good things of the world. That would be to deny the goodness of our own creator, wouldn't it? No, no, that's not the problem. No, the attitude that sits behind it, that's the issue. Seeing ourselves as the centre of the universe, verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Extravagance is everywhere on the Gold Coast. You've got to be blind to miss it. House prices in Rabina start at a million dollars. 
And even if it's only for two weeks, people from all over Australia come here for the lifestyle. Luxury homes and hotels and holiday units, luxury cars that sit in traffic <laughs> or get stuck in a car park. Luxury places to pamper and pander ourselves. Wealth isn't used in the service of ourselves, friends. Wealth is to be used in the service of others. And so we sculpt and we shape and we dye it and we colour and we tint and we tan and we manicure and pedicure and we search for a cure. But the only way to be good, the only thing that leads to is being the best looking corpse in the cemetery. <laughs> James says the day of slaughter is coming. And again, the problem isn't wealth, it's what we do with it. Or in this case, don't do with it. Look there, verse 4. Behold the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James isn't talking about some pay dispute with Jim's mowing. This is much bigger than that. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the cries of the poor and the needy. God overlooks doesn't overlook exploitation God doesn't overlook injustice he heard you when you cried out to him which is why James instructs us now to be patient verse 7 the judge is now standing at the door a wealthy lifestyle can lead to the harm of others it can lead to death and even injustice when you're the one with all the haves it is easy to miss all those with the have-nots. Being rich can lead to carelessness and insensitivity. But it is not wrong to be rich. The crime isn't being wealthy. The problem isn't having money. It's putting money in the wrong place. That's the problem. What we do with money and what it does to us, that is the problem. Like making plans without God, being rich puts us at the centre of the universe and that is not a place for you and I to occupy, friends. Loving money leads to misery. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. When we're driven by what matters most to us, we are not being driven by what matters most to God. We place ourselves at the centre of the universe and that is not a place for us to occupy. That place belongs to Jesus. When we make plans for ourselves, when we pursue our own will, when we use our money to indulge ourselves, James says that's arrogance and boasting and sin. You might be wealthy and well organised, but James says when you do this, your religion is worthless. It was Jesus who said, not my will, but yours be done. So friends, where are your money and your plans taking you? Let's pray.
Our Father, we've become so accustomed to all that we see that we've forgotten that we are people who believe. We're so grounded in the materialism of our own day and in the moments and in the plans that we have that we've forgotten that there is an eternity. We focus and set our hearts on what we see, but what we see is temporary. Would you give us eyes to see this morning, Lord Jesus, that we've been made for eternity, not just for now, not just for this moment, not for the next appointment in our calendar, but that we've been made to know you, the true and living and eternal God. Would you help us to orientate our hearts towards you? Would you help us to stop seeing ourselves as the centre of the universe? We are not the hero of this story. Lord Jesus, you are. And so we ask this morning that we might realign our hearts towards you. That we would see where our plans and where our finances take us. And that we would leave them in order to come and follow you. Help us to know how to do that. Give us wisdom, we pray. Help us to do that not just as people, not just as families, but as a church too. That we might see that we are made for more than this. Help us, Lord Jesus, not to have lives that are just a mist, that are here and then gone. But lives that dwell with you forever. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.